Open your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 7. We're going to talk about the flesh this morning. Yeah, we've got that. I had St- Stacy take a picture of me from the back. <laughs> and, and, and I know, I know. Romans chapter 7. Interesting. I know, that got to some of you, didn't you? <laughs> That was, it was Richard. <laughs> yeah. We're going to have an argument after church. No, it was me. The flesh. All of us have it. We're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about what triggers the flesh, what triggers rebellion. We're going to talk about the fact that we don't need to live there as believers. Uh, but there's just some real practical stuff here in, in Romans 7. Last week, remember, we looked at the fact that Paul wrote that we're dead to the law the law. In verses 1 through 6, we looked at the law's authority actually being broken. It has zero authority uh, over a dead person. And he says, you're dead in Christ. When Jesus went to that cross, you share in that death. He died in your place. And so what he's saying in that is essentially that having died with Christ, the law's grip on my life, as well as the penalty for being a lawbreaker, is broken. In other words, you don't put a corpse in front of a firing squad. Doesn't make sense. And that was his point. In Romans 6, 2, Paul writes that the believer is dead to sin. In Romans 7, 4, he writes that the believer is dead to the law. So the question then comes up, and we're going to look at it. We're going to start there when we get into the text this morning, is are these two statements in some sense the same? you could just imagine people saying, are you saying, Paul, that uh, since I've got to be dead to the law in order to bear fruit to God, is there something wrong with the law? Are you saying that the law is sin? And remember in verses 1 through 3 last week, if you were with us, we looked at Paul's example. He talks about the law of marriage. He says, a woman is bound to her husband. And then her husband dies. And she, as a result, is free to be bound to another. Now, and then he goes on to apply his example. He says, we are bound to the law. And then he says, we have died to the law. Not that the law died. That's the difference. Remember, we talked about that. He doesn't say that the law died because the law hasn't died. And he says that we're free to be bound to another, to be bound to Christ. He says to be married to another is what he says there. And he's talking about, uh, the legal bonds that that entails. So the answer to that question that he says is, we'll see in Romans 7, 7, is that Paul's emphatic that these two things are not the same. Yet he refers to the relationship between sin and law in verse 5, and he'll develop it more fully in the, the text that we're looking at this morning in verses 7 through 14 of Romans 7. So I'm going to start by backing up a couple of verses from last week. <laughs> you know me, context is everything. You've got to, we're coming into the middle of a whole train of thought that Paul has. So uh, the last thing we want to do is isolate these scriptures and come up with something goofy or weird. Uh, we want to be able to understand the context of what's being said. So he says in verse five, he says, for when we were in the flesh, he's talking past tense, The sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. Then he says, but now, present tense, 
We've been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. So we're going to see here that we still pack around this flesh and, 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 and all of that. Again, because of time, we can only look at verses 7 through 14 this morning. I want to be careful that I don't lay this out and just kind of leave everybody hanging like, well, <laughs> we're just going to lead, it, leave, lead a defeated life uh, subject to sin and all of that. That's not where we're going. Uh, next week, we'll actually look at some really interesting things where Paul just kind of spirals. Uh, so, but the question is, is what is the flesh? What's he talking about here? What's, what is that that he's referring to in verse five? And what does it mean to be in the flesh? It probably, if you've been hanging around the church for very long at all, you'll probably know that that is a term that gets tossed around. I apologize to our men's group the other night because I said something. I said, sorry guys, I was in the flesh because that, just that temptation to draw attention or whatever it is, it's always there. Well, the Greek word for flesh is sarx. And what it means is our mortal bodies, flesh. Uh, it's best described specifically as our current mortal human state, our flesh. It's now, now it's the human body and the physical needs and desires which incline towards sin and selfish acts in our lives that, that that's what influences our motives. And we look at it also, you could interchange this with the nature of Adam. He's talked about the body of sin. He's talking about the old nature, the old man. Those are all things that are indicative of the realm in which we're discussing this morning when he talks about the flesh as a real battle, as a real thing with us. It's our nature outside of Christ. That's why he says past tense. Does that mean that that nature is eradicated? No. We still live in the tension between the flesh and walking by the spirit. And I'm telling you, when we get to chapter eight, it'll all make sense. But as we work through these things, we're going to see that, that there is a real, uh, a real experience of the flesh in each of our lives. In the New Testament, Paul's thought uh, is that all parts of the body, the, the Greek word is soma, it's where we get the word somatic. Uh, they constitute a totality known as the flesh the natural man. Thus, the flesh is dominated by sin to such a degree that whenever you look at man, all forms of sin are present and no good thing can live. We're told in Romans 8, you cannot, it is not possible, it's, it's just not a thing at all that you can live in the flesh and please God. So, therefore, to be in the flesh is to come under the dominion of our flesh that's why he's talking past tense in our life before Christ uh, and to be controlled by its self-seeking appetites and evil inclinations and desires. Now, I want you to understand that Paul is going to go present tense into these things as a believer. There are many commentators, many scholars that say, no, 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 no. This is all indicative of Paul's life before he was a believer. There's In verse 9, we'll look at that because he makes a reference to it. But this is his struggle. This is his wrestling as a believer. I might also mention that dead men don't wrestle. So he, he gives, in Philippians chapter 3, Paul gives us some great insights into the flesh, what he's talking about here. I'm going to read through. It's a bit of a lengthy passage, but I want to pull some things out of it. 
He says in Philippians 3, in verse 2, he says, beware of dogs. Now, that's Gentiles were synonymous with dogs. They're talking about the, the evil Gentiles. He says, beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. Now, in the New American Standard, the mutilation is the false circumcision, okay? Uh, what he's saying is that there's these guys that were going around, and they were actually following Paul around and saying, yeah, well, you know, grace is good, but you've got to live by the law of Moses. And, and Paul's saying not so flat, fast, because if you look at circumcision, uh, it, it, was, it was an outward sign of an inward act. It was, it, we've looked at that in Romans. It, it was a rite that the Jews went to and held, went through and they, they held to it. But it was supposed to be symbolic of a cutting away of the flesh of the heart. That was what it pointed to. That's what the fulfillment is in Christ. Uh, we don't, the church doesn't adopt that particular rite, but we look at baptism, baptized into the, his death, as we've looked at, resurrected to newness of life. It's a cutting away. So he says in verse 3, he says, We're the, we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Again, I would submit to you that he doesn't say we have no relationship with the flesh. He says we don't have any confidence in it. So, with circumcision being a symbol, he's saying that false circumcision, uh, the, the, those that were touting that, uh, that they had an outer circumcision, uh, but not the inward circumcision of the heart. That's why he calls them the mutilation. He's saying, if you're just going to do that as an empty ritual, you're just mutilating yourself. That's what he's saying. He talks about that more in the book of Galatians. So the result was an unchanged, uncircumcised heart and a life dominated by external righteousness. We've looked at that at length. Doesn't cut it, but inwardly dominated by the flesh. Going on in Philippians 3, he says in verse 4, though I also might have confidence in the flesh, uh, if anyone uh, else thinks that, that he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. And then he goes on and he gives sort of a pedigree of his background prior to his coming into a relationship with Christ. He says, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. You've looked at that. The, 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 the righteousness of man does not come close to the righteousness of God. An external form of righteousness was what the religious leaders of Jesus' day had. And Jesus said, your righteousness has to exceed that, or there's no way you can get to heaven. So when he talks about the righteousness which is in the law, he's talking about, we looked at it again, we, we talked about it last week, he's talking about the rules. I'm living my life by rules, and so therefore if I'm checking the boxes that I must be righteous because the Jews assumed that they could create their own righteousness. They had no concept of the fact that you can't get there from here because of your depravity, because of the flesh, because of the nature you were born with. You have to have righteousness imputed. That's what it means to be justified in God's eyes. So in, in verse 7 in, in Philippians 3, he says, but... What things were gained to me, those I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also call, count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, 
but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. We've looked at that in Romans 5 where we get the, as part of the deal, when you come to Christ, when you give your life to him, that you are clothed in the righteousness, the perfection of God, the, the righteousness of Christ. That's what it means to be justified by faith. And it's far beyond being just as though I never sinned. I mean, that's part of it. But, but being accounted as righteous is, is, is if, if it was just as though I never sinned, that brings us up to the line, but he pours it on and he takes us so far beyond that. So his point, he says, I had it made with the externals, I had it made with living by the rules, but it was confidence in the flesh. All my confidence was in the flesh. He was self-deceived. We'll talk about that. It was a confidence in a self-made righteousness based on law. That's part of why Paul is laying it out here in Romans. It's not about the law. It's not about checking the boxes. It's not about the rules. He says, I, as a result, I tossed it all. I, I, I counted it all as loss. I, I got rid of all of it because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. In other words, I traded all of that for a relationship with Jesus. That's what we're about. That's what we're after. So, whereas verses 1 through 6 that we looked at last week, they speak of the lack of the law's authority over a believer's life. Verses 7 and following speak to the law's activity in a believer's life. I want to read verses 7 through 14, and then we'll come back and uh, unpack it a bit. In verse 7, he says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetous unless the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. Therefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, fleshly. Sold under sin. So how's that, gang? <laughs> Did I just try to tie your brain in knots? Yeah, I remember the very first time I studied this is way back in the 1980s. <laughs> I was like, what on earth is he talking about? Uh, I just, it, there are so many twists and turns. I felt like I was on Lombard Street in San Francisco. <laughs> and yet this really makes sense as, as you understand the progression of thought that he's laying out there. And I'm going to attempt to, to do that, to bring understanding to this thought progression that he's, that he's engaged in here. It, it, so in the very first part of verse 7, he says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. So in the book of Romans, there are 10 certainly nots. <laughs> this is the sixth. Before we finish today, we'll cover the seventh. I mean, he is very, very articulate on what he's not saying. I remember my son, when he met the woman that, well, he got to, they knew each other as kids, but when he first got her attention, she, this girl, her name's Angelica, came off of the mission field, and she was at church one Sunday, and, and my son and I were sitting on our porch swing after church, and 
And he goes, you see Angelica? I said, yeah, I did. He said, she's changed because she'd been on the mission field for a few years. And I said, yeah, she has. She's a young woman now. And uh, I said, you, you, should, you should ask her to go have coffee with you. And he's, oh, no, Dad, I broke her heart when we were teenagers. She wouldn't want anything to do with me. And um, I said, well, you won't know unless you try, but let me give you some advice. Be sure that when you're having a conversation with a girl that you include in the conversation what you're saying, but also include what you're not saying. It's really, really important because they'll go there right now. And I'm not trying to be weird about it, but it was just that sense of you want to not leave the door open to be misinterpreted. That's why Paul is saying this. Certainly not. Don't misinterpret what I'm saying. Don't go there. That's not what I'm talking about. So when he says it's the law of sin, no, it's an emphatic no. He's saying that law and sin are different. Uh, let me explain why. Verse 7 again. Uh, on the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness, that's evil desire, uh, unless the law had said, you shall not covet. So the Greek word for covetousness is epithumia. It's, it's, it is translated evil desire, and we'll see that uh, further as we go, because he actually uses the words evil desire, and it's the same word. His point is, is that the law said I shouldn't covet. It triggered something in my rebellious heart that all of a sudden I'm thinking about everything in the world that I shouldn't covet. And if you're honest with yourself, that's part of what happens. And that's, that's his point. So when he's talking about this, he's talking about every impulse of the flesh, the natural man. It's sin. And so when he's talking about sin here, it's synonymous again with the flesh, with the natural man. He's not talking about sins, plural. He's talking about sin. That's the nature. It's the nature of Adam. So when he says, I wouldn't have known sin except through the law, essentially forbidding something to somebody who can't abstain from it is a real sure way to get him to know his own bondage and his own helplessness. Uh, there was a teacher many years ago uh, named Gaylor, when some of you know who he is, uh, he would do this wonderful exposition, and I'm, I'm just going to briefly mention it, uh, on yogurt-covered raisins. He talked about when he crossed the door into the, the grocery store, those things were on his mind because he couldn't eat them. He, he just, he, if he had one, he was done. And, and he would talk about wandering through the store, always knowing that what aisle they're on. And, and, and then he, he, he'd get to that aisle to pick something else up, and all of a sudden he's looking at them. And he's thinking, I've got mastery over you. <laughs> Pretty soon he's holding them. You know the rest. Here's the relationship between the law and sin. The law relates to sin like an x-ray machine relates to a tumor, okay? The machine itself isn't bad because it reveals something bad. That's when the law reveals our sin, it is an instrument that that God uses to allow us to see our own depravity, our own sin. Essentially, his argument is that the law is not sinful simply because it makes us aware of what is sinful, The point when he says, I would not have known covetousness, sin, unless the law had said, you shall not covet, law. There's the relationship between sin and law. 
They're not the same. He begins to unveil the spiritual character of the law here in the following verses. And the reach that the law has in the lives of unbelievers, yes. The unregenerate man, that's all he knows, is flesh. But also in the regenerate man, in the spiritual man. Verse 8, he says, But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire, for apart from the law, sin was dead. How twisted the flesh is. He's saying, I wasn't even thinking about covetousness. Now I can't think about anything else. In Proverbs 9, 17, we see the picture, the pictures of an, an immoral woman calling after men passing by in, in the center of the city. And she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. Folks, sin is alluring. Sin is attractive. Sin draws us in. It plays on our lusts. Don't think that it's not. I always think about Moses in in Hebrews chapter 11, where he says that he chose to be identified with these Hebrew slaves, prime minister of Egypt, but he chose to be identified with them, with the people of Israel, rather than to endure the passing pleasures of sin in Egypt. He's illustrating a dynamic here where the warning don't do that can give sin a beachhead. You guys know what a beachhead is? Because of the sinful, our sinful rebellious hearts. Uh, in the military, it's a military term. It's a strategy of, of uh, winning a small border area that becomes a stronghold and from which you can advance to the rest of the territory. And, and if you look at the films, like in Normandy, the, the, the Allied troops got a beachhead. And they were able to, at great expense, great cost, to advance on the enemy from there. The word opportunity here in this passage, the Greek word is a forme. In the original, it's a military term, meaning a base of operations. Giving sin a basis of operation or a base of operations is the same as giving sin a beachhead. You give it a place in your heart. It won't stay there. The flesh pays zero attention. We've talked about in the last couple of times, talked about, I remember I showed you that poster of Nancy Reagan saying, just say no <laughs> to drugs and how effective that would be. Just say no. Uh, and then we looked, looked at, you know, 10 ways to be a better you. Folks, you want to be a better person, you need to deal with sin. You need to understand its grip. You need to understand what God's delivered you from. The point in all of this is that prohibition furnishes a springboard in our flesh from which sin is all too ready to advance. It's not the fault of the commandment. The fault lies with us. This shows how great the evil of sin is. It, it can take something good and holy like the law. And we'll look at that. That's what he says here. And twist it to promote evil. Sin, let me give you a couple of examples. Sin perverts eros, physical love the love that God ordains in lifelong heterosexual marriage, it perverts that. Eros is the Greek word for that. Into porneia, that's the Greek word for sexual immorality. Sin perverts it. Sin warps the bounty of God and his blessings into the love of mammon. Jesus warned against it. He said, you can't serve both. And sin here, what we're seeing is sin twists the commandments of God the law into a promoter of sin. And that's the effect that 
the law has that Paul's bringing out here. In verse 9, he says, I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. (laughs) I have in my notes, ignorance is bliss. Before being convicted by the law. Now, Paul, he makes a reference to, I was alive once without the law, but he's talking about, he's not talking about He was an adherent to the law of Moses, but what he's talking about is the law of God. He's talking about that thing that instinctively he knew uh, in his heart. He says, when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. It's the unregenerate man. Before being convicted by the law, Paul was alive, but he had no consciousness of sin. Have you dealt with people in the world, people who don't know Christ, and you see and you identify, there's no consciousness of sin. That's why... My language before I came to Christ and after I came to Christ changed. And that's why all of a sudden I found it really offensive with other people when they're just dropping stuff out there because now there's a consciousness of sin. And he's saying before I uh, came to Christ, before I knew the commandment, I I was, uh, (laughs) sin revived. I died because he came to a knowledge. He came to a conviction from the Holy Spirit over sin in his own life. Before being convicted by the law, Paul was alive. That is, he had no consciousness of sin, was blissfully ignorant of the depth of the depravity of his own heart. That's why he was out there charging around the empire, arresting, persecuting, killing Christians, doing what he did in the life that he had prior. The law shows us our guilt. It excites our rebellion. It, it really, it, it shoves the pedal of our sin to the floor and it perpetuates more sin and death. <laughs> Folks, this is not the key to becoming a better person. Just identifying is not the key. In a sense, the more he tried to obey, the, the worse he failed. And yeah, he would come to die to any hope of achieving salvation by his own character or his own efforts. That would happen. He would come to die to any thought of his own inherent goodness. He says, I, in me, no good thing dwells in my flesh. He would come to die uh, to any dream of being justified by law keeping. Wasn't going to happen. It was only then, when, when Paul talks about us dying to the flesh, it was only then that he began to live. Until then, he thought he was in good shape. He thought that he was doing God's will. He thought that he was right in the center of all of it. We'll talk about that more in a minute. Verse 10, he says, in the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. So he might have been thinking here in Leviticus 18.5, it it reads, you shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. And that makes sense. It appeals. However, the law promised what it couldn't deliver. Not because it was sinful, but because humanity is weak and rebellious. The responsibility doesn't fall on some lack in the law. It falls on you and I. It falls on us. Ideally, the law promised life to those who kept it. That, that's the, the caveat. That's the kicker. You gotta keep it. The reality is, the law became a death sentence. Because of sin, no man has the power in himself to keep it. Folks, this is a concept that is taught all over the New Testament. It's not about checking the boxes. It's about love, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit. Uh, In your own time, read Galatians chapter 5, where he talks about the deeds of the flesh. 
and the fruit of the spirit. Because we're not stuck here. Romans 8 is coming. Life in the spirit is coming. So understand that he is doing this because he wants to illustrate essentially what we're saved from. And mainly when Jesus came, he came to save us from ourselves. Praise God. You can look at it this way. Say that there's a sign outside of a lion's enclosure at the zoo. It says, stay back from the railing. If you obey that, that commandment brings life. (laughs) If you don't, if you ignore and you reach, it's going to bring death. And essentially, that's what Paul's illustrating here is that the law brings death. Because you can't keep it. I can't keep it. No one has ever, except for Jesus, that's why death couldn't hold him, has ever fulfilled, kept the law perfectly. In verse 11, he says, For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. This is a fascinating verse. This goes all the way back to Adam. When you look at there in the garden, God had said, there's only one commandment I want you guys to pay attention to. Do not eat from the tree. Don't do it. And the serpent, taking occasion by the commandment, as he says here, deceived Eve. What does he say to her? Has God indeed said? Is that thing that God commanded you really where it's at, Eve? That was the start. If you understand our sin nature, you understand that 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 is our base nature outside of Christ. That is humanity's base nature outside of Christ. If you don't believe me, just open up any news site that there is. And, and, and the, truly what Isaiah says that, that men are calling what is good evil and what is evil good is pervasive in our world. And, and folks, it's people, I, I tell my wife sometimes, they're just being faithful to their nature. And it's true. It's absolutely true. And there is no consciousness of sin. Oh, there might be a consciousness of wrongdoing, but no consciousness of sin, that that's the nature that I have that's driving the things that I'm doing because it's not about sins. Sins are a manifestation of sin. In other words, the, the, the sins I commit, the acts, the deeds that I commit are a result of a nature that I'm allowing to be dominant in my life. And that doesn't have to be so for a believer in Christ. Proverbs seven twenty one through 23. Again, I love the Proverbs. There's just so much wisdom there. He's talking about this whole thing, the enticement of sin. He says, with her enticing speech, she causes him, she caused him to yield. With her flattering lips, she seduced him. Immediately he went after her. As an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a fool to the correction of the stalks, till an arrow struck his liver, as a bird hastens to the snare, he did not know it would cost his life. True words. So let's make it personal. Let's look at at Paul. Let's look at his life before the Damascus Road. What was Paul lusting after? What was he coveting? He was a scholar. Remember, he he had successfully climbed the ladder in Judaism. He had excelled, as we just looked at in Philippians 3, above his peers. I don't think that Paul's lust was was a, a, a physical lust. I don't think it was a sexual lust, but I think he did have a lust for power. Pretty evident when you look at, you read about his life and you look at a composite of his life prior to coming to Christ, he wanted to be the top dog. And he was. He had earned position and power and prominence in Jewish culture. His power, his lust for power, 
and his zeal for Judaism had led him in the end, as we saw in Philippians 3, to become critically aware of his own self-deception and the resulting death sentence that hung over his life. He thought, and folks, he thought he was doing the right thing. He really did. He was convinced in his own mind. We were talking about wokeism uh, in our Tuesday night men's group last week. And we were talking about how people are really convinced in their own mind because it, once you've locked God out of the public square and once you've taken the morality that comes with being a Christian, that comes from just being a believer and being filled with the Holy Spirit, that you take that out, you're going to come up with any some false form of morality on your own. And, and the woke culture that's out there promotes a, a false moral morality that is horrible. There is no forgiveness. There is no, and in the end, I believe they're going to devour their own because it's like Jesus talks about, you know, you can point your finger at somebody else all day long and talk about the speck in their eye, but there's no, no, no sense of looking at the, the, the log, the beam in their own eye. That's where Paul was at. He wasn't woke, <laughs> but, but he was at a place where he thought he was doing the right thing. He thought that he was promoting something that God was in. And when he was convicted by the Holy Spirit, I'm telling you, when the scales fell from his eyes, as we read about there in the book of Acts, I can only imagine the grief in his own heart that came. Verse 12, therefore, the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. So Paul now, he summarizes the answer to his question. He's been unpacking that question ever since verse seven. And now he just summarizes, he sums up. He says, therefore, it's holy. It's not, the law is not sin. It's holy. It, it, it's, it's good. It's just. He reiterates the fact that the law is an expression of the heart and the mind of God. Because when we talk about holiness, ultimate holiness is the holiness of God that he shares with us. That's what we're talking about. We remember big picture. We're talking about sanctification, what it is to be holy, what it is to live a holy life, what it is to produce fruit for God. He says the law is perfectly pure, perfectly just. It's entirely good. It's an expression of God himself. So you can't put the fault on the law for the people to be, for us, for us to be holy it means that we're, we're actually, we're taken over by God. That's what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. That, that we're set apart. That's what it is to be sanctified. That we're set apart for His purposes. Paul says, I w- I'm no longer my own. I was bought with a price. While we have been and are being made holy, we will never attain holiness. His point is through law. We will never become more holy by checking boxes. And, and I've mentioned before, folks, we like that. I want to get to the end of the day and think, man, I checked, I loved my wife. I did this, I did that. And God says, it's not, that doesn't amount to anything in my economy. And, and the motives of your heart, it may be that that's fruit being produced by my spirit, but in your flesh, there's no good thing that dwells. So as you look at the law in the context of Romans 7, the question becomes, verse 13, has then what is good become death to me? <laughs> there, and he says, certainly not. His trademark, certainly not. May it never be. Uh, I think I gave you my translations. What are you nuts? He says, no. <laughs> he said, but it's sin. 
that it might appear sin was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. So when he says what is good, what's he talking? He's talking about the law. It's good. He just said in the last verse, the law is good. So then he says, so is what is good? You know, is that becoming death in me? He says, no. He's asking rhetorically, is the law the culprit in dooming me and everybody else, by the way, to death? The answer is emphatically no. Sin is the culprit. That's the relationship. The law is the x-ray machine. Sin is the tumor. It's illuminating my sin. Sin didn't originate with the law, but the law reveals sin in all of its exceeding sinfulness. It, when it shines a light on sin, it's like, wow. I remember coming to a point several times in my life, actually, where God would reveal some dark aspect of my heart and just being convicted to the core. Oh, God, I'm so sorry. I, I just didn't see it. Remember, he says in chapter 3, verse 20, by the law is the knowledge of sin. So the question becomes then, how does man's sinful nature, the flesh, respond when God's law forbids it to do something? The answer is clear. What may have been dormant desire now can become burning passion. It's not the law. It's that nature of Adam. It's the flesh. It's activated. So thus sin through the commandment becomes exceedingly sinful. That's what he's talking about here. In verse 10, I want to make a clarification here, here too. Paul said that the, he found the law to bring death. In here, he denies that the law becomes death to him. So how do you reconcile that? He's making a point, and this is the point. The law by itself, it cannot improve the old nature. God is not into fixing you up to be a better person. He says that person has to die. So the law can't improve the old nature. And on the other hand, it can't cause it to sin. On the other, it's not part of the function of the law. It can reveal sin just as a thermometer <laughs> reveals the temperature. But it's powerless to do anything about sin in the same way that the, the thermometer can't do anything about the heat. It doesn't make sense. He, he wants to make this very, very clear to them and hopefully to us. Verse 14, last verse for this morning. He says, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. Carnal literally means, the, the Greek word translates, of the flesh. I want to talk to you. I've mentioned before that I don't believe that Paul is going back and talking about his unregenerate state. Yeah, he makes reference to it in verse 9. But let's, as we, especially as we go through the rest of this chapter, these are some comments that he, that, that we can derive from this whole thing, uh, that he includes. That the person described in Romans 7 hates sin. Uh, they want to do what is good. Uh, the person in Romans 7, in their inner being, delight in God's law. They deeply regret their sins. And at the end of it, in verse 25, that this person thanks God for their deliverance. So the question I have for you is this person who's not, is this a person that's not been regenerated by the spirit of God? I hardly see how it could be. However, on the other side of that, this regenerated individual is still experiencing a struggle. They didn't tell me about that when they said, God loved me and has a wonderful plan for my life. Folks, 
Why did we, why does he talk about the struggle? Because he's not yet in heaven. Because he still has a body. He still has that body of flesh. And, and I, I'll show you. I've got a slide that I made up. I, I keep trying to make room to show it, <laughs> like for the last four studies, that, that really divides it. It gives you a graphic example and understanding of what we're talking about. And essentially, when we come to Christ, we go from a nature that is sin and that's it. Because sin is the dominant nature in our life. The flesh is the dominant nature in our life. And yet at that moment that I believed, if you look at man as a superior or an inferior trinity, God is the superior father, son, spirit, but man is body, soul, spirit. That what happens in my life when I come to faith is the spirit is dead. But what happens is that God takes and now the dominant nature, the dominant aspect of my life is now spirit. It's no longer flesh. That flesh is now my lower nature. He doesn't get rid of it. We've talked about that. I have to deal with it. I die daily is what Paul says. He says, man, I'll tell you, the last thing I want to do is start trying to check the boxes because all it's going to do is activate sin and I don't need to live there. So how do we live? We live our lives by faith in the Son of God, understanding that the only way And we'll get to it, folks. It's going to be a couple of weeks. The only way that I can live a life that counts is by my life being immersed in God through the agency of the Holy Spirit. There's a lot of kooky stuff out there about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And I'm telling you, it sickens my heart because people are getting ripped off by the show. The true ministry of the Holy Spirit is convict us concerning sin and righteousness and judgment The true ministry of the Holy Spirit is to bring us into all truth, to help us to understand passages. This is a difficult passage to help us to understand how, what this means and what it says, how it applies to my life. That's the work that the Holy Spirit only can do. If you're understanding any aspect of this, that's the spirit of God in you. If you're seeing a lack in your life, it may very well be because you do not yet have the spirit of God. Take care of that in a heartbeat. Give your life to Christ. You may be here. You may be watching online this morning. It's a simple prayer. As Lord, I, I see myself in this person. I see myself unrestrained in a life of sin. I want a better life. I'm understanding. I'm not going to get it by checking boxes. I'm not going to get it by keeping the rules. I'm going to get that better life as a result of my life becoming now a response to the grace that you're showing me. Unmerited favor, that's what grace is. He wants to pour out his spirit on each of us. He will not pour out his spirit on someone who is flesh. There has to be a transaction. When Jesus went to the cross, he went to the cross to take care of that. He went to the cross so that we would have power in our lives to live. We don't have to live in this place that he's talking about here. We can live in the abundance of the life and the spirit. Will we do business with the flesh? Yeah, all the time. Will we cave at times? Yeah, we do. But you know what? He says, if you you ask him to forgive you, he will. He'll cleanse you from all of it. Wonderful relationship that he offers us. Sort of taking a look at the dark side this morning. Again, I just encourage you, hang on. Romans 8 is coming. The most glorious, I think it's the most glorious passage in all of the New Testament. Because there, Paul lays out a life. He lays out a life that's fruitful. 
He lives out a life that's close to God. He lives out a life that actually counts. He lives out a life that is empowered. It's the flesh. Jesus, when he, remember, he went to the guys. He's in the garden. He's praying. He goes, he keeps finding them asleep. And after he went to him the third time, he said, you know, the flesh is, or the spirit is willing, but the flesh is what? Weak. So there is a struggle. There is tension between the new life and the old life. There is power. We have power to not obey the lusts of the flesh. We have power through the Spirit's work to overcome. We have power to live a life that really does count. Let's pray. Father, oh, in this very, very, very brief look at Romans 7, at looking at the flesh, at looking at that nature that wars against your spirit living inside. I pray for myself. I pray for each one in this room, each one within the sound of my voice, that you would work in us, that you would strengthen us, that you would empower us, that you would give us the ability, Lord, to simply walk away, to resist in that evil day, knowing, Lord, that the victory is ours. So I pray for anyone here, Lord, that is under conviction, uh, for sin in their life, for making a, a beachhead for sin. I pray, Father, that that you would give that person the just the unction, the, the, the ability to turn from that, to renounce that sin in their own lives, to ask for forgiveness from you, and to move forward cleansed. We know that's the work that you're about doing in our lives, and we yield to your work this morning. We thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.